Okay, in all the Bible, there is um, no place that's more majestic than where we'll be next week. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 through 11, is uh, the Kilimanjaro of Philippians. It is the Everest of Paul's writings. It's all about Jesus, and we're in the foothills, or the base camp, today. What I'm going to uh, preach today is something that I couldn't have preached last year because I really didn't see it. Couldn't have preached it six months ago, couldn't have preached it two months ago. It's really three words. Three words in Greek, talk about them. A few more words in English. Verse 3 of chapter 2 is the uh, base camp for this majestic hymn of praise to Jesus beginning in verse 5. So to set it up, let's look at a very familiar text, Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of Jesus, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I got a Christmas gift from a friend. I didn't expect it. It was a book. God Never Blinks. It's written by a woman who wrote a column for the Cleveland paper, Cleveland Plain Dealer. She was a columnist for a number of years, and then she turned 50. And she decided that that was a good time to reflect back on all of the hard knocks and the lessons that came from them. She had a terrible childhood. She got married young and divorced. She became a single parent 
she searched for God. And out of all of those difficult, deep experiences, she wrote these columns. And people loved them. In fact, they began to say to her, you know, you need to write a book. So she did. Fifty chapters. Fifty lessons. Chapter 7. I could give you the title, but it'll give it away. So let me just tell you the story. She said, I was in second grade when John F. Kennedy died. She said, the nuns at the Immaculate Conception School held out the First Lady as the epitome of strength because she never shed a tear in public. Jackie was the perfect widow. She was the perfect woman, according to the nuns. She was the perfect Catholic. When the world was watching her, veiled in black, she never broke down. Even when her son John John saluted the casket, she didn't shed a tear. And the nuns told us she was just like Mary, the mother of Jesus. They told us Mary didn't weep at the cross. When she held the dead body of her son, she didn't weep. When she came to the tomb, she didn't weep. For years I believed that until I read the Gospels. Decades later I learned that Jackie Kennedy would go out on a friend's boat alone. And when she got as far as she could go from land, she broke down and she began to sob because she missed her husband so much. By the time I finished reading the article, I too was sobbing. How sad it is to hide your tears, especially tears of such a deep sorrow. The best advice I ever got was never cry alone. Crying alone isn't as powerful as crying with someone else. Because when you cry alone, you're destined to cry those tears over and over again. But when you cry with someone else, it has the power to heal you. So that you never have to cry those tears alone. Title of the chapter, Don't Cry Alone. You know, Paul would understand that. Listen to what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, that word's fellowship, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, that's how he begins but he doesn't write that in a vacuum. You know, the, when he wrote his letter, it wasn't divided into chapter and verses. That happened centuries later. When he says, so if there's any encouragement, it follows directly from what he said at the end of chapter 1 when he's talking about conflict. He's talking about the Philippians living in conflict. I love what one commentator said. When Paul founded churches, he was the ultimate strategist. 
He went to Philippi because he knew it was on a major trade route. In fact, a Roman road went right through the city. It was in a mountainous region, very strategic. It separated the west from the east. Paul knew that Alexander the Great had founded that town. That's why they called it Philippi. After Philip, Alexander the Great's father. He knew, Paul did, that it was a Roman colony. He knew that there were gold and silver mines there, so people had wealth, so that if they were converted, they would support the gospel. And it all sounds good until you read the Bible. When I read that from this distinguished commentator, I'm thinking, what Bible are you reading? You know what Luke tells us in chapter 16 of Acts? Paul and Silas are in Troas. They have determined that they're going to go northeast to modern Turkey, northern Turkey, and they're going to proclaim the gospel there. And then Luke says, but the Spirit of Jesus prevented it. And then Jesus gives Paul a vision. And in front of him is a man from Macedonia, that's to the west, and he says, come over here, we need you. And instantly Paul and Silas change their direction. They want to go northeast, instead they go northwest, they go to Macedonia, they come to the the city of Philippi. It's interesting to read this account. They go all the way across the Aegean Sea and the wind is with them. No shipwrecks, they make record time. Why? Because that's where Jesus wants him. He's no master strategist. He's a master obedient servant. And when they come there to that town, they find no synagogues. Why? Because they're fairly uh, scattered Jews. In fact, there are very few Jews in Philippi. Remember, they have to go down by the river where people are calling on God, Lydia and others. And the reason there are few Jews is because the Jews hate Romans. And the Romans have made this city a colony. They hate Rome. You know what the Romans, or know what the Jews used to call the Roman army? The abomination of desolation. Remember that? Book of Revelation. They believed the emperor of Rome was the Antichrist. For he said, I am God. And so when Paul and Silas get there, and they found this church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's instant conflict. Not only conflict between Jews and Romans and Romans and Jews, but between Romans and Christians and Jews and Christians. And get this, conflict between Christians and Christians. Can you imagine that? Listen to what he says, complete my joy. By being of the same mind. Why does he say that? Because they aren't. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. The reason he says that is because they're of different minds. And they're in conflict. And it's this conflict that we find in this chapter that is the conflict that every one of us has known since our birth. Every one of us is engaged in this same conflict. It's our basic human mind and heart. It's our basic disposition 
to live in conflict, not only with others, but with ourselves. And Paul knows that the natural human mind is always engaged in conflict, and he juxtapositions or he contrasts that with the mind of Christ. So what is our mind that's in conflict, and then what is it that characterizes Jesus' mind in which there is no conflict? I'm glad you asked those questions. You find it in verse 3. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the methodology of the human mind. Paul says in verse 3, the first part, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now that word, selfish ambition, is one word in Greek, aretheia. It's the same word he uses in chapter 1 when he says some preach Christ out of a spirit of envy and rivalry. The word literally means rivalry. Do nothing from rivalry. It's interesting, in the book of Galatians, he talks, he uses that same word, and he describes the spirit of rivalry to be synonymous with sorcery, idolatry, sexual immorality, and all kinds of things. And Paul says, do nothing out of the spirit of rivalry. You know where he traces it? He traces it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Let me ask you a question. I'll answer it. But I'll give you the, the wrong answers first. With what did Satan tempt Eve? Most people say the fruit. That was a secondary temptation. That's not it. You say, some say, well, it was the words of God. Remember what Satan says to her? Did God really say to you, you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? Uh, It wasn't the words of God that he uses to tempt her. The root of the temptation is this. For God knows, in the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. He tempts her with selfish ambition. You can eat this fruit and you will become just like God. In other words, there will be no one greater than you. Now that's exactly the same temptation that Satan embraces before the beginning of the creation. Remember, we read about it, we studied it. The 14th chapter of Isaiah. He says, in five ways I'm going to be as great as God. I will ascend. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on that throne. I will ascend above the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. Now, what Paul is saying is that is the universal condition of the human heart. That's our methodology. We want to be great. We always want more. 1962, Joe Kennedy moved his family from Boston to New York. Did I say 62? 26. Yeah, 1926. Joseph Kennedy moved his family. The president was nine years old. And a friend came to Joe Kennedy and said, listen, you've made tons of money here in Boston. 
You've been good as an importer. Why would you move to New York City? Kennedy, it said, sat back in his chair and he said, because I want everything. Now you file that under selfish ambition. I mean, think of this. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he's writing to the best of the churches. And yet when he writes to them, he talks about their conflict, their selfish ambition, their rivalry. And he tells them, he tells them that that's the problem. And you know that means something. It means that it's the problem in every one of us. Every man, woman, and child has that same selfish ambition. We're locked in a conflict. It's interesting. When you say to somebody that you see, you observe are in a conflict, you say, listen, just be reasonable here. Just sit down and work it out. You know what they say to you? Get the heck out of here. Mind your own business. It's none of your affair. Why do they say that? Because it's not a matter of reason. It's not a matter of truth. Adam and Eve had all of the truth, all of the reason to be obedient to God, and yet what do they do? They turn to their selfish ambition and they embrace it. Why? Because they have a motive. Why do we seek ambition because there's a motive and the motive is the next word do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit now the King James renders it vain glory the word in Greek for conceit or vain glory is kenadoxia Doxa is to glorify. Doxology is to glorify God. The prefix kenna means to empty. So the word conceit there literally means empty glory. Do nothing out of rivalry. Do nothing out of selfish ambition with a desire for glory that is empty. See, according to those who study these things, every one of us has two basic psychological needs, to love and be loved and have a sense of worth. And Paul knows that the reason that we're so susceptible to selfish ambition is because we're starved for worth. We want significance. We want glory. We want people to respect us. We want to matter. Shakespeare once said, it's not hatred that's the man's greatest judgment, it's indifference. I mean, think of that. When you hate someone, they matter to you. When you're indifferent to them, you don't even know they exist. And according to Paul, our greatest fear is to be considered insignificant. That's, like, that's why when somebody overlooks you and somebody doesn't value you and somebody in your own mind doesn't show you any degree of significance, you go ballistic. Everything in you screams for worth. So what do you do? 
You try to manufacture your worth. You center everything on yourself. It might be money. It might be position. It might be a spouse. It might be children. It might be a home. It might be whatever it is. It's an interesting thing that the more you center your life on yourself, seeking glory, the more empty you become. And actually, the more boring you become. Have you ever met a narcissist? I mean, jeez. You might engage them for a minute, but please leave me alone. You are too boring. I talked to a man on Friday about he met Donald Trump. And just from his few uh, sentences of description, it, it was consistent with what I thought about Donald Trump. Please get me away from this guy. But you and I are Donald Trump. Somebody said, the bigger your head, the bigger the yawn. I mean, that's true. Think of the garden. Adam and Eve had all the glory they could ever want. They were glorious. They were made in God's image, and there was nothing to mar that image. They had it all. And yet, they knew nothing of vain glory. They had true glory. And yet, they gave it away. Sin robbed them and us of our glory. And by nature, we do everything we can to get it back. But we can't get it back. There's nothing we can do to get it back. And the more we try to get it back, the further away we fall from it. And if Paul were to stop there, all he's given us is a description of the conflict. That's the basic human condition. That's where our mind is. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the methodology, selfish ambition, the motive, vain glory. He goes all the way to the model. Gives us the remedy. Verse 5. Have this mind in you. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember what Barrett said earlier? It's not have this mind in you that you can gain. Have this mind among yourselves which is already yours in Christ Jesus. What's he mean? One last Greek word for you. What begins in verse 5 and ends in verse 11 is called the kenosis text. And you know really what that means. You should. Kena, kenosis, means to empty. And Paul elaborates that in verse 7. Now, we didn't read that, but we will next week when he says that Jesus Christ emptied himself. So think of that. While we are trying to fill ourselves with vain glory, Jesus had total, real glory, true glory, and he emptied himself of it. 
Now, why did he do that? Why did Jesus surrender his true glory? So that he might enter into your worst nightmare. He empties himself of his own glory so that he would become worthless. He empties himself of his glory so that he might become of no consequence. He empties himself of all of his deistic privilege so that he might be completely overlooked and forsaken and considered totally insignificant. Why? So that you and I might be remembered forever. Listen to what Isaiah says. He was despised. He was rejected of men. He was one from whom men hid their faces, but it was a lot worse than that. His own father hid his face from him. He emptied himself and was rejected so that you and I would be forever accepted. He emptied himself so that we might be filled. He became nothing so that we might become everything. He gave up His glory so that you and I might receive that same glory we had before we fell. I mean, isn't that what the gospel's all about? You get to the place where you say, I'm worthless, I'm insignificant, I'm of no consequence. You should wipe me out, Lord. And he said, I hear you, and I'll do the opposite. I will give you all of my glory. Do you see this? Have this mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, empty yourself of your vain glory. Empty yourself of your selfish ambition. Would you just stop that crap? Don't you know that you've got true glory already? That's the gospel. You get to the place where you say, I'm nothing, I'm no, I have no glory, I have no weight, I have no chance of getting anything on my own, and he hears you, and he gives you everything that's his. I mean, think of it. John 17, right before Jesus goes to the cross, what does he pray? He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. Why does he pray that? So that everything we lost in the garden he might regain for us on the cross. You see, our joy in Jesus is that you and I can cease all our attempts at gaining worth and significance on our own. The joy is we already have that in Jesus. You know what that means? That means when I cry, I never cry alone. When I cry, and I know that he cries with me, it's healing 
No wonder Catherine Kuhlman once wrote, the beginning of greatness is to be small. The increase of greatness is to be less. The perfection of greatness is to be nothing at all. Jesus would agree. So would Paul. That's the only way to live free of conflict. It's only in ceasing your striving. It's only in ceasing your attempt at false glory that you remember again. He is all you need. And everything he did has become yours. There is joy in knowing you're nothing. But in him you're everything. Think of that. Amen.